The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Well, there's nothing like a plague to put things in perspective. It's been a hundred years exactly since the Spanish flu finished killing off more of us than either of the world wars. And now in the year 2020, symbolically the year of clear vision, we're exposed to a variant on plague once again with COVID-19. I found it meaningful, too, that this was the year the Swedish actor Max von Sydow died. He was a favorite of mine and played the knight in Bergman's 1958 film The Seventh Seal, which probably had more influence on my early point of view on life of life on Earth than I could summarize here. The knight, Antonius Bloch, had returned from the Crusades to his bleak castle during a time of plague. Death stays very busy during plague years. But the knight challenges him to a game of chess in order to postpone his own inevitable death. At other times, the knight is looking for a meaning to, to this life, but fails to recognize it, uh, and it's embodied in a young man, a juggler-entertainer, his loving wife and young child who travel by wagon through the plague-ravaged countryside, trying to make a living by taking folks' minds off the horror surrounding them. There are scenes of penitent parades where people march through the countryside whipping one another to earn God's forgiveness for the plague from the plague, from the punishment of the plague. But the most famous scenes are of the knight and death on the beach, making their moves on the chessboard. The knight was holding out well, but he makes the mistake of going to confession, and in the confessional, revealing to the priest, who is death, what his next move will be. As a teenage Catholic requiring to go, required to go to confession, the scene haunted me. I was even moved to take up playing chess for a while. But what was obvious was the answer Antonius was seeking was right in front of him, embodied in the loving lives of the young juggler and his family who managed to survive it all. Interestingly, in 1965, Von Sydow went on to play Jesus in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told. But for me, his losing his chess match to death in 1958 could not be salvaged by his overcoming death as Jesus in 1965. As I recall it today, the juggler and his family were not so much people of deep compassion as much as they represented the power of human love and the blessing, the grace of God that protected them on that account. It took several more decades for me to recognize the difference in the relationship between love and compassion and the overlapping similarities as well. One step toward that in that understanding was a talk I attended several years ago. It was the Dalai Lama's birthday, and he was instructing a packed theater to listen to his words. And almost all his words were about compassion. He said it again and again, like a mantra for guiding your life. The Oxford English Dictionary says the word compass has a mysterious past, but one explanation is when people walk together in measured step. More than walking in another's shoes, its root is walking the same path in measured time with another. 
And coincidentally, I think, our degree of compassion is the measure by which we get measured by and by in our life review. This past week was a holy time for Christians and Jews, with the start of Passover on Thursday, Good Friday the next day, and Sunday was Easter. Passover celebrates God's love for his people when the angel of death passed over the Hebrew children and took the firstborn males of their Egyptian captors. Good Friday was the crucifixion, Sunday the resurrection. All the houses of worship who understand love were closed to their congregational assemblies to protect them from the suffering born from contagion. Jesus' death on the cross is called the Passion, and Christians believe spiritual salvation was gained through his death. No longer would lambs and doves be sacrificed on the temple altar as an offering for sin. Jesus was meant to be the final blood sacrifice necessary to cover our sins and gain God's love. The Bible tells us Jesus on the cross uttered the despairing line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't know Psalm 22, you could take those words as a sign Jesus had doubts about God's love for him. But in fact, he was reciting prophetic Psalm 22, written by King David a thousand years before Jesus was even born. In honor of a Holy Week plagued with suffering, I thought I would read you King David's Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. On you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the world, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he, cr when he cried to him, and from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the, state of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And there's the end of uh, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus' time. So what is the difference between love and compassion? Well, I think it's the difference between the light and the life review, as reported by those endy ears who have experienced it. God is love, and when the light of love embraces us, there is nothing to compare it. We are at one with love itself. But to have compassion is to stand in the shoes of the other. We are where Jesus was on the cross when he said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In other words, he was here to teach a lesson, and we, for the most part, did not understand it. Jesus' compassion led to his passion, his suffering. His suffering went just one way, for we know not what to do. True compassion on our part would have not allowed that. For a dozen years or so, beginning in 2002, our, our church in Bangor, Maine, produced versions of the Passion Play, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Although we were a Protestant church, the local Catholic hospital sponsored the first production, which made it financially possible for us to do. My wife and co-pastor Charlene wrote and directed these Passion Plays. They were all different, based on the different Gospels, and some set in modern dress, some historic. One year, she had a Greek chorus sing all the lines except for the words Jesus spoke. Passion is a word meaning strong emotion, expressing everything from sexual desire to spiritual yearning, but its root means suffering. Jesus' passion was his torture and death on the cross, passion done out of compassion for us. Pagan religions gave the gods human-like natures to give them human understanding and hopefully human-like sympathy so as to bring healing to the sick and rain to the parched ground. Christianity has God being born as a human to understand the nature of his creation. Either way, for good or not, passion is a human condition. For those who are suffering through this plague of ours, this COVID-19, some of Psalm 22 can put us in compassion with the nurses, the doctors, the service people, and all who are out there on the front lines suffering to protect us from the plague of 2020. They are the ones playing chess with death, not for their own sakes, but to save the lives of others. To push it further, they are too often insufficiently masked before the aerosol-borne virus of death, and still they persist, and too often they are dying. During the Spanish flu and the Great Depression of the last century, there was a Polish nun named Maria Faustina, 
who reported having many visions and conversations with Jesus. She died young of tuberculosis, but not before writing a rosary-structured prayer called the Chaplet of the Divine Mercy. A line from that prayer is a prayer I often recite while the dog and I go out for our daily two-mile walk. It goes, For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Just a brief uh, take from a longer prayer cycle, but it works for me. Faustina was named a saint in April of 2000 by the Catholic Church, in part for her visions and conversations with Jesus. She once wrote in her diary, Oh, how astonished I am that some people deceive themselves saying there is no eternity. Near-death experiencers can agree with her on that. Near-death experiencers have been given another survivor gift as well, since most of us no longer fear death for ourselves. That can be a powerful stress reducer in times of plague. Not that anyone's uh, looking forward to infection with coronavirus, mind you, but, but it lifts a level of fear from our shoulders and makes us want to contribute to the cause. So with that in mind, I thought I would use the last of this uh, Easter plague year show <laughs> to uh, contribute some suggestions as to how you can use your understanding of NDEs to help lift some of the fear from other shoulders as well. Now, let me begin by saying these suggestions come from uh, out of my 15 years' experience as a hospital chaplain, so they're not totally off the top of my head. When I was a chaplain, I would begin my day by stopping at the first room in the ICU and introducing myself to the patient and family members present and ask some simple questions like, how's it going? And then I would listen. If they didn't want me there, I'd listen and leave. If they wanted a prayer, I'd say one in their tradition and listen. If they wanted to talk, which was by far the most common reaction, I'd listen. By now you're probably getting that 90% of a chaplain's job is to listen. Really, listen. If they needed prompting, I might ask a question like, is the staff treating you well? Can I get you anything? Any concerns you'd like to discuss, etc., etc.? Well, you get the idea. Well, right now, you're probably isolated at home, but we're as close as our phone or computer to checking out how others we know in, li- in our lives are doing. This is where you can become a chaplain to others. Now, in my job as chaplain, there was one thing I was willing to start talking about, and that was on those occasions when it seemed a near-death experience story would fill a hole or lift a fear. And right now, I'd say many people fear what they don't know about what's happening, uh, what happens to us when we die. It might be your own NDE story you could share or, or somebody else's. I heard many stories in my work as chaplain asking patients who had coded and then uh, been revived if they'd seen anything while they were on the other side. And very often they did. I often asked if I could tell other patients about their experiences without revealing the patient identity, of course. And they usually wanted me to. In fact, they, uh, they were delighted with the, with the idea. It was a gift they wanted to share. So I thought I'd give you just a few examples of how we know we never really die. Uh, some of you may remember these, some of these references from uh, previous shows. I'm sure I've talked about them before. Well, let's begin 
with uh, some simple signs from people saying goodbye. There was one woman I met in the hospital whose, um, whose daughter was sick but not dying. She said, uh, she told me after we'd talked for a while about signs and symbols from the other side, she said, I was very upset when my husband died, terribly upset. And I went home and I sat in my chair, my favorite chair, and my husband's picture was hanging on the wall next to, the, next to my chair. She said, suddenly, out of nowhere, this picture fell off the wall into my lap. And I knew, I just knew, <laughs> that he was saying goodbye. There are many people who've seen uh, actual visions of uh, a grandmother who had just died, for instance. Uh, one young person told me of how he'd seen his grandmother sitting on the edge of his bed, not saying anything, just looking at him. And uh, later he found that uh, that was the moment of her death and she'd, she'd come to say goodbye. There are other, th other signs that you can have. I, I, personally, I've had a couple. Um, a friend of mine who put her hand on my shoulder as she was leaving. I was sitting at the cafeteria in the hospital. I didn't even know she was a patient there, but um, uh, I knew immediately who it was even though when I turned, there was no one anywhere near me, and I couldn't see anything. But I knew it was uh, Sarah, and I said, oh, Sarah. I knew she'd been sick with cancer, didn't realize that she was there, and later I could confirm that that was the moment of her death. Another friend of mine named Ron was uh, uh, dying, and as I uh, talked to him about it, and he was very interested. He'd had visions himself of, of Jesus and uh, Mary. He, uh, I said to him, uh, well, when you do cross over, uh, say goodbye to me. And about 3.20 in the one morning, I felt this incredible hug. Uh, it was as if someone was hugging my soul, that they'd reached through my body and touched something, uh, my heart. And uh, later, his wife confirmed that it was uh, it was Ron. He had died just at that moment. Sometimes there are stories about the hospital staff, how understanding they can be, or perhaps not so. One I know I've told in the story on the show before is a, about a nurse who really loved this patient, and even though the patient had put in a do not resuscitate order. The nurse, uh, when she heard the alarm go off, when the patient coded, went rushing down the hall because she was bound and determined to do CPR. She really wanted to save her friend. Well, the spirit of her friend knocked her flat on her back on <laughs> in the hallway leading to the room. And she said, not only was I knocked over, she said, I could not stand up. There was this heavy weight on my sitting on my chest. And she realized at that moment that that patient had really wanted to not be resuscitated. She was, it was her time and she wanted to go and she was not going to be resuscitated. And she let her friend, the nurse, know very clearly. Um, there was a nurse who told me the story of how a patient who had been very gr grumpy and unhappy and in pain had... Um, 
she'd come in one morning and he was bright and cheerful and she said well you you must be feeling better you're cheered up and she he said well uh, i had a visit for my brother he's going to come in and get me tomorrow at one in the afternoon and she said well i thought you told me your brother had died he said yes he did and he's going to come and get me at one tomorrow can you come and sit with me the nurse said well you're not that sick you're not going to die but uh, she agreed to come and sit with him the next day she's sitting there at one o'clock and promptly at one he raised his arms with this big smile on his face he saw his brother coming even though she didn't and then he died one of the stories i like to tell is one woman i stopped by she had just been resuscitated a few hours earlier um see they did cpr and then they uh, used paddles on her and brought her back and uh, I said, well, did you see anything while you were on the other side? She said, yes, I did. She said, I saw my father. He died three years before. And uh, she said, and it was like I was just just like I was a little girl again. Um, now, this is a woman probably in her 50s, late 50s. And she said, I, I saw this beautiful light behind him, this lovely light. And I, I just wanted to run past him and into the light. But he said, no, it's not your time yet. You have to go back. And she said, like a little child, she said, I tried to run around him. She said, I tried to scoot right around him and go into the light, but he grabbed me and stopped me and and sent me back. <laughs> and here I am. And she was she was glad to be back, but she was very glad she saw her father because it assured her that that we do go on after we die. There was an atheist who ran her car into a tree and uh, was standing there. Uh, her spirit was standing outside the car, looking in at her crumpled body and this crumpled mass of metal. And she was she had no belief in Jesus or any idea of an afterlife. And uh, she said, I turned around and Jesus was standing there. She said, I just knew it was Jesus. And he said, I, I uh, had to go back in my body that it wasn't my time. She's back in her body. The jaws of life have to be used to pry her out of the car. The EMTs say she'll never make it. She'll never make it to, to the hospital. Uh, she was so badly damaged. But they get her to the hospital. They, uh, they look at her and they say she'll never, she'll never make it through the CAT scan. But she made it through the CAT scan. And they said, well, she needs uh, serious um, operations on her body. But she probably won't make it. She probably won't survive the operations. She made it through the operations. Uh, she got to rehab, and they said, I don't think she'll ever walk again. Well, two weeks later, she walked out of the hospital, quite uh, resolved that she was a Christian, <laughs> and uh, in the face of this amazing miracle that had happened to her. Uh, another story that I'm, I'm sharing these stories with you, by the way, so that you will have some material, if you'd like, to pass on to people that you talk to about who have some question about um, what's, waiting, wait, what's waiting for us on the other side. Here's a difficult one, but um, there's a man who, who hung himself and died, and his mother, who was a, just a little bitty thing, discovered him, and with a probably a surge of energy from the shock she was able to lift him out of the rope that he was had hung himself with and she uh, called the 
ambulance and they got him to the hospital and he was still breathing but the um, doctors declared him brain dead they said there's there's just nothing we can do he's a, a total life support at this point and um, they said uh, you know we can keep on like this for a while but nothing will get better so she called me down and she and I joined hands over over his body and we prayed and the next morning I went down to see if she was still in the hospital and what had happened and by God he was standing up he was actually arguing <laughs> with his mother about something um, I didn't I, just, I looked in but I didn't go in because they were a, a heated argument I don't know if he was protesting the fact that she'd saved his life or not but in fact God must have said you're not out of here yet. You got to do something better with your life, because uh, he was—he had been uh, brain dead according to all the measurements, and he was perfectly functional when I last saw him. Let's see if I could give you one more. I'll tell you about um, the uh, perfect death experience I had when I was. Uh, when I was a chaplain, I attended a family who uh, were so loving and so kind and so gentle with one another and with this great-grandfather who was in the hospital dying. And they were assuring him every way possible that he, could, that he was a wonderful person and that they would be perfectly okay and they didn't, he didn't have to worry about anything. Um, they were letting him go, but they loved him dearly. The room was full of love, and it was just, it was just uh, such, um, you know, if death can be a happy experience, this was, this was uh, certainly one of those. Well, at the moment of his death, it was almost as if I traveled with him for a ways. It was as if the room was filled with the golden light. I'm not sure anyone else, I doubt that anyone else saw it, and I certainly didn't want to bring it up, because if they hadn't seen it, they would have been disappointed. But I felt very blessed because it was like uh, honey had poured in, poured down from the from the ceiling. That, and it was uh, I don't know if, if we could say it was generated by his love for them, their love for him, or God's love for the entire family because it was uh, so moving and so powerful, and uh, and so much the way. Uh, uh, death ought to be. Uh, well, there's stories to get you started, but if you'd really like to involve people in um, in hearing more stories in more detail about the other side, then this you're at the right place. And um, thanks to uh, Ken Root, we now have... Uh, apps that you can go to through Apple or the Google Store. Put them on your friends' phones. Have them come tune in, listen to any of the any of the past shows. Um, because if they're interested in this, it can lift a huge weight off their shoulders. Uh, and this is a time when people need that. They need to be encouraged by the power of near-death and other spiritually transformative experience stories. So, let me dub you all now, all you listeners, our telephone and multimedia chaplains. 
So get on the phone or social media and check in on those folks you think might benefit from your having someone listen to them for a change. Be listeners. And when the time comes, and you'll know when the time is right, if it fits, tell them an NDE story. Please stay home, stay well. Until next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, this is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>